You're listening to the First Baptist Church Broken Arrow podcast. To learn more about the church, visit us at fbcba.org. Today's sermon comes from our pastor, Dr. Matt Brooks. Good morning, church. If you would, please open your Bibles and read the book of 1 John this morning, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, as we excitedly start a new four-week series called You Are Loved. May we all just be in awe of the magnitude of God's love for us. My name is Matt Brooks. I'm the senior pastor here at First Baptist Church of Broken Arrow. Welcome to our church. We love to study books of the Bible. We're currently about halfway through the book of Acts. We want to take some time, and I want us to be overwhelmed today by the magnitude of God's love for us, but then also the cherished responsibility we have to love one another as God has loved us. So I want to also remind you that in this season of school starting, teachers, we love you. Coaches, we love you. Administrators, we love you. Students, we love you. It's going to be a great, great year. And if you're continuing your walk with Christ and starting school this week, I want to remind you our content team has put together a devotional that walks right alongside the sermon that you're about to hear. If you're interested in that this week, text the word sermon to 45776. Now let me ask you this question. How would you describe God's love to someone who has never experienced it? I mean, if you ask anyone what is love, you're likely to receive a wide variety of answers. Now, some love is a feeling, love is a, a commitment, it's an emotion, love is intimate, love is love. The human heart longs for love more than anything else. But isn't it amazing that we lack specificity on exactly how to define love and even less clarity on how to explain love to someone else? All we know is that all you need is love. So this sermon series is for you. We are going to stand in awe of the depth and breadth and magnitude of the love of God. We also are going to embrace the God-given responsibility we have to love each other as God has loved us. How God will use that to compel a love for others. That the means in which you and I apply God's love is by practicing it with each other over and over and over again as we continue to follow and to honor Christ. So today, from 1 John 4, 7 through 12, I'm going to talk to you today about the unconditional, everlasting, limitless love of God. Love is the defining characteristic of who God is. For God alone is perfectly loving and is the source of all love. And the Apostle John, more than any other New Testament writer, clearly explains how God has revealed his love for humanity. Remember, it was the Apostle John in John 3.16 that said of Jesus' words, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Primarily in his four, five books in the New Testament. We have John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. John speaks of three kinds of love. That God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for each other. And that is what we're going to focus on in these four weeks. God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for each other and one another. Now additionally, for now the third time in 1st John. The Apostle John lovingly but urgently speaks to believers on the priority and the necessity of God's selfless, sacrificial love permeating every aspect of our lives. To John, love carries the idea of an intentional, ongoing lifestyle that we place the highest good of others as the priority in our life. 
that we choose God and others above ourselves under the knowledge that God loves us, always has, and always will. Why don't we study this together? 1 John 4, why don't we begin verse 7. Your Bible says this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loves us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loves us, we ought to love one another. For no one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God loves us, always has, always will. The basis for our love for one another is God and his love for us. Look at verse 7. This is why the Apostle John commands us, not once, but twice. In verse 7 and verse 11, Beloved, let us then love one another. That the essence and evidence of Christ-like living is loving like God loves us. That God-like living demands God-like loving. That this is the evidence of the miraculous work of God among us. Now I'll remind you from Genesis to Revelation that miracles have, have always been a way in which God confirms a new revelation among his people. You remember in the book of Exodus, God's people are in bondage for 400 years. He sends a man by the name of Moses to deliver them. There is no logical explanation besides God alone did this. They were, they were enslaved. They were encumbered by the most heinous, ruthless dictator, Pharaoh, the world has ever known. And yet God sends a sheep herder from Midian to go free his people. He uses 10 miracles through plagues, unexplainable, divine signs and wonders by God. He calls God's people to the promised land and God miraculously leads him with his presence, a light throughout the day, his presence throughout the night. When God gives his law at Sinai, his presence comes upon as he reveals his intent and his heart for his people. It was a miracle. It was a sign of confirmation of a new way for God's people. Not just in the era of the law, but in the era of the prophets. And God's people would be overwhelmed. They would overwhelmingly choose themselves. They would be enslaved once again by other nations. And though they were in bondage in a time of darkness, God would prove his faithfulness through his people through the message of the prophets, both minor and major. He would reinforce this with miracles through Elijah and Elisha as God was working a new way through his people that a Messiah would come, one who would be light to all nations, one who would be the divine signature of God's love to all people who call upon him. The Messiah would come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and Throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there would be 35 miracles that Jesus would use, often to confirm a message or to reinforce a point that he was making, unexplainable things, clearly pointing to God and God alone was working through this man because he is God. The book of Acts, which we're halfway through by God's grace, 
you've seen God taking the message of the apostles, those who Jesus himself commissioned to be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, and how God is confirming a new revelation to the sign and wonders of these apostles. What this, is this miracle now in the age of the church? It is that we would love one another miraculously as God has loved us. So how does God love? Well, John says in verses 7 and 8 that, that love is something that we are to do to one another, that God is love in verse 8. The word love here is agapaho. How does God love us? In a selfless, self-denying, unconditional way. It is a sacrificial love on behalf of someone else. Now, the amazing thing is, among Greek literature, the word agapao is rarely mentioned at all. One specific author we have found historically. But yet in the New Testament, the New Testament writers speak of God's love 250 separate times. Agapao is not this temporal love, this sensual love, but a transforming love. A love from God himself through Christ. Love, in verse 8, is, this, is an unconditional love that is committed to seeking the highest good of those whom are being loved. Christ followers are to extend God's supreme and sacrificial love to one another because love is the essence of God. And John gives Two primary reasons were to love one another in verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 7. For whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That anyone who is genuinely saved by God, is born again of God, will continually love God and love others like God does. Consequently, those who fail to love like God have no truthful testimony among the brethren at all. There is no sense of a regeneration work of God among them. Why? Because they do not genuinely know God in verse 8. Recently, we were hanging out in St. Louis, Missouri, about six and a half hours north of here. And we were watching the Cubs-Cardinals series. And hey, as a Cubs fan, amazingly, who won that series? Oh yeah, we did, right? It's incredible. Awesome. It was the two hottest games I've ever been to in my life. 108 degrees, 114 heat index. And so we were trying to get through the first game just not to sweat to death. And so we were walking around the stadium and we went to the gift shop. And in the gift shop, I saw a replica there of the spirit of St. Louis. Now, do you know what the spirit of St. Louis is? The spirit of St. Louis was a plane that was flown by Charles Lindbergh on May the 20th and 21st in 1927. Charles took this plane 33 and a half hours across the Atlantic, 3,600 miles from New York City to Paris, France. This is a transforming historical event. He flew 1,600 miles further than anyone had ever flown before. This was an amazing, amazing event. And instantly, Charles Lindbergh became the most famous man on the planet. In fact, in 1928, he was named Time Magazine's Man of the Year. Fortune, fame, popularity was instant. Yet tragically, on March the 1st, 1932, just three and a half years after this event, 
Charles Lindbergh's son, Charles Jr., was kidnapped, seized, ultimately murdered. They found the man who supposedly did it, hung him. Things appear to be over. Yet for decades, there would be individuals who would show up to the Lindbergh home and ultimately the Lindbergh Foundation claiming to be the long-lost son of Charles Lindbergh, seeking his inheritance, his fortune, and his fame. None of them were ever rewarded it. Do you want to know why? Because none of them looked like Charles Lindbergh. You see, here's my point. If you claim to be a child of the father, then you better resemble the father. And that is exactly John's point in verse 8. Because God is love, he says. Let that set for a minute. Can I tell you how radically refreshing this was to his audience? You see, Greek and Roman gods were callous and cold and angry. People were ruthless means to their end. To the Greek and Roman world, they knew nothing of a God who was love. But yet here is Christianity once again reshaping the framework of the world. Not by their thinking, but by their actions. Not by the actions of themselves, but on the actions of God on their behalf. God is love. God's love is one-dimensional, one-directional, as love is not something God does, but something God is. God defines what love is because God is the source of love. God is love, John says. Did you notice that grammatically the definite article was given to God? And not to love, in verse 8, you say, what's the significance of this? Simply that God by his nature is love. Love is never absent from his being. Therefore, love does not define God, but God defines love. It is God's enduring and everlasting love that is the most clearest and logical explanation for all creation and salvation and glorification. For all God does is an expression from his nature, which is to love. God is not callous. God is not indifferent. No, the Bible says that God is living. He is personal. He is active. And even though he was perfectly content, sufficient within his own glory among his triune fellowship in eternity past, God made human beings in his image who were given as a light in light of that image, a God-given capacity to, to choose, to repent of their sin, to believe and receive his love, to be empowered by this love, to live within this redemptive love. John wants us to be aware that God's love is a sovereign love in verse 8. God knows us and still loves us. God does not love the idea of us. He loves us. God doesn't love you at your best and hate you at your worst. No, he loves you because God is love. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you have done that can make God love you less. God is love. And we love because God loves us. 
The reason we love God is because of God. And this is important. Because we can only give to ourselves and only give to others what we receive from him. You see, the world doesn't love this way. The world gives us a transactional, conditional love. Love is regulated by the reaction of the person receiving the love. If you love me, then I may or may not love you back. If your love satisfies me, if your love gratifies me, benefits me, then I may or may not keep loving you. God never loves like that. Because God's love is tied to his eternal nature, not our temporary behaviors. God loves us, always has, and always will. And our love for God always comes out then of his love for us. God loves us with a covenantal, forever love. God in heaven bestows his love upon us because he is preparing us to eternally be with him. God's love then is not an idea or a philosophy based upon culture or community or personality. No, it is a resolve of God disclosed through his incomparable love towards us through Christ who comes to save and to rescue us. It is in this love, John says in verse 9, that the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You see this phrase here, his only son? Highlighted in your Bible, it's significant. It's of a word monogenes. It means unique and only. One of a kind, unmatched by any other person. It is referring here to Christ in regard to a singularity of status. John is emphasizing and affirming the deity of Christ who was with God and is God. Jesus as God has always existed. In his incarnation and coming for us, he, he did not take away from his deity. He simply added his humanity. And the emphasis here by John is twofold in verse 9. Number one, the coming of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, is the supreme visible demonstration of God's love for us. God lovingly apostled. Sent is the word here. His son to be a willing sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin. The other day we were on our way to campus on midweek and man, we, we were incredibly exciting. A new fall here with you know big drop for our kids and our students were hanging out and we pulled into the student parking lot here on Wednesday night. And man, God has been good to our students. We saw a brand new Mustang in our parking lot, which was awesome. And, and there was this truck that was all kind of raised and blinged out. And so, you know, Major, I'm dropping him off. And, you know, he's kind of looking at these cars and looking at me and says, hey, dad. He says, well, was your first car like this? And I said, no, no, not at all. And he said, well, what was your first car? And I said, oh, son, it was great. It was a 1984 Pontiac 6000. Literally, no one in the world would, would ever, ever want this car, ever. Uh, by the time I got it in 1999, it had 200,000 miles on it. The air conditioner worked every other month. It had this weird smell because apparently there was some dead animal that we could never find in it. It, it would shake often because of the steering wheel. Just, it just wouldn't turn left most of the time. So you would always have to find unique ways to get you where going. Other than that, it was great, right? 
No one in their right mind would ever, ever want this car. In fact, I was, I was thinking about this in preparation this weekend. This car struggled with, with this fuel injection problem. And so oftentimes when going uphill, my car would begin to stop. And so I'd often have to gain speed going uphill and then kind of compensate going downhill. And so sure enough, as some of you have started two a day. Some of you have started football practice. Hey, praying for you guys, man, go ball out. But I was on my way to two-a-days one morning, 6 o'clock, 6.30 in the morning, and sure enough, this car begins to shake and stalls as I head up the hill. And so I just put it in neutral and coast all the way down this hill, headed to the field house to get ready for practice. And God, in his sense of humor, there were three of my best friends right there who arrived at the same time. And I get out of my car, and they are laughing hysterically. And I'm like, just something I need to know. What's up? And they're like, Maddie, you're the only man alive that your car is actually faster without an engine than with an engine. <laughs> this thing was a piece of junk. By God's grace, about two months later, we put this place in a salvage yard and I upgraded to a 1986 Chevy Lumina. All right? It's a disaster. Disaster. Here's my point. John says in verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest to us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You see, I can't help but wonder that many of us in this room, we look in the mirror. And instead of seeing ourselves as God sees us, as made in his image, predisposed of his eternal, never stopping, unconditional love, full of grace, mercy and potential to be everything that he has saved us and called us to be. We look in the mirror and see ourselves as a 1984 Pontiac 6000. Barely making it. Struggling just to get through our day. Uphill, downhill, and any other obstacle. But you be encouraged by what the world says is worthless. God says is worthy. Where the world says, I wouldn't give any, any price for this. God says it's priceless in sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the world and our circumstances begin to place us in the salvage yard, you know where we get this word salvage from? The word salvation. May we rest in the work of God for his glory. In sending his best, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, God in his supreme love punished our sins in Jesus so our sins would not be punished in us through faith in Jesus Christ. May we be overwhelmed by this never stopping, never giving up endless love of God seen through the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, John says, God then holds nothing back in his love for us. God bankrupt heaven. God gave it all through his son, his only begotten, the one and the only who died so that you and I might have life, a life that does not just save. But did you see the end of verse nine? So that we might live through him. That God desires to bestow upon us not just a salvific love, a love that saves, but a love that transforms forms to conform us more to the glory of God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who resides in us by faith 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. God loves us, always has, always will. God gave heaven's best. The invisible God became visible. God descended so we could ultimately ascend for the glory of Christ. Love came down and rescued us. May you be overwhelmed this morning by the magnitude of this love. May it have its intended work in our hearts and in our lives to propel us by compelling us daily to love one another just as God has loved us. What does that look like? Look at verses 10 through 12. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For no one has ever seen God, and for if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God's love is not contingent upon the circumstances of our lives. But it's plainly obvious in his resolved eternal love displayed through the sending of Jesus Christ into the world. Now I'll remind you that all attributes of God are manifested at the cross of Christ. The greatest demonstration of the grace of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. The greatest demonstration of the power of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. The greatest demonstration of the holiness of God and the wrath of God and the sovereignty of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. So without question, the love of God is manifested. It's made evidence at the cross of Christ. No one has ever sinned beyond the love of God. He loves all of us this much. But with much love is given, much love is required. And John says in verses 10 through 12 that when we truly understand God's selfless, active, eternal love for us, we must then love others in like manner. He explains in these verses that it is only when Christ's followers express for each other a love that God defines that God's love is verified and perfected among his people. You see, this love was never meant to keep to ourselves. This love was meant to radiate to all of those who God places around us. God's love produces genuine change in us and enables us to love all from the adorable to the incomparable to even the unlovable. And the primary application of this truth is to first believers. That God says, among the miracles that I've given, that the testimony of my love will be displayed for my people's love for one another just as I have loved them. No conditions, no assumptions, no traditions. Just my love and my glory as they continue to follow my son. It is a love that is meant to be practiced It is a love that is meant to be worked out daily as we continue to follow Christ together. The primary application of you and I loving one another starts first within God's people. If we can't love one another, how in the world are we to love others? If we can't love one another who claim to follow God, how in the world will we ever show the love to others who hate God, despise God, or could care less about God? It is within this arena that you and I, within God's church, beloved, are to live as loved. 
among one another. And we got much practice to do. I praise God that football season is almost upon us. I hope that you've been like me, kind of enjoying this NFL preseason and you know, college football, by God's grace, is less than three weeks away. Can I get an amen? And so from that, we every year in my household to kind of prep for the football season, we watch Remember the Titans. Remember this movie? Came out my senior year in high school, 2000. And Remember the Titans is based upon the true story of T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria, Virginia, that in 1971 integrated their schools. We, for, for decades, have struggled shamefully with this in our country. And so T.C. Williams High School, trying to lead the way in the state of Virginia, they integrated blacks and whites and anyone in between. And the coach at T.C. Williams High was a man by the name of Herman Boone. And Coach Boone was masterfully played by Denzel Washington to remember the Titans. They were given a zero tolerance policy in regard to racial tension, racial hatred, racial animus, any display, fighting, infighting, anything. Their season is done, over. In fact, according to the movie, and even if you read the historical documents of this, you know, the, the school board and leadership didn't even think they would make it out of camp. They didn't even think they would make it to the season. This was just something as a political appeasement. But Coach Boone knew otherwise. And they had to training camp at some junior college in the local area. Man, they begin to get after it. They're hitting one another and beginning to fight, so bring, be, beginning to break out. And man, as they become a team, Coach Boone gets them up one morning at 4, 4.30 in the morning, and they start running. God, God can work out a lot sometimes early in the morning. God can work on us a lot in a season where he has us run. And so Coach Boone takes off. Anyone who doesn't follow him, we'll find you a bus. You can go back home. Your season's over. And so they followed him mile after mile. Step by step. And Coach Boone leads them to Gettysburg, one of the most significant battlefields in our country's history. One of the most pivotal moments of the Civil War. 50,000 Americans, 50,000 fathers against sons, brothers against brothers, families against families, neighbors against neighbors, fighting with one another. Coach Boone gathers these men and he tells them, we must take a lesson from the dead on this battlefield. That if we do not come together, love each other, then right now we will have the same fate as these men. Right now we will perish just like them. Right now we will be destroyed just like them. John's point is that we must learn the lesson not from culture, that we must learn our lesson not from traditions, not from principles, but we must take the lesson of God himself who took upon flesh, who left the heavenlies, who expressed love once and for all, not by thought or philosophy, but by action in giving his life for people who hated him giving his life for people who shamed him, giving his life for people who crucified him. And yet he still willingly died for them, took their place. It is within this sense that you and I, according to verse 11, John appeals 
to base our actions upon the action of God in Christ, who is the motivation and model for our love to others. You see, saving faith is in Christ alone, but saving faith is never alone. We cannot claim to love God and not obey what God has commanded us to do or love whom God has commanded us to love. God-like living demands God-like loving. And you and I are commanded to love one another. Can I tell you that the Apostle John, who was writing this to God's people, never got over that? You'll remember that John characterized himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He never got over Jesus' love. Traditions say that John would often, in any conversation, or even during his sermons, he would end with this charge to love one another as God has loved us. You see, the key to loving others is living loved. Are you living out this love in your heart, in your home, in our church, in your neighborhoods? You say, well, what does that look like? Well, throughout the New Testament, it's given several examples. Number one, a genuine fellowship. Fellowshipping with one another. An intentionality to place our focus on Christ. To set aside these minor abstract differences. Keep our eyes on Jesus and his love for us. It is seen relationally in forgiving one another. Not just actively listening or intentionally pausing but allowing a dialogue to take place under the foundation of God's resolved love for us through Christ and then allowing that love to multiply through God-given respect and charity among each other, a quickness to forgive whatever it is, minor or major, in offenses against us. It has taken a stewardship, secondly, of of God's resources, Acknowledgement that the God owns all things, that you and I are owners of nothing, stewards of everything, and God has blessed us to be a blessing to one another. I remind you that the early church in Acts 2 changed the world because of their love for God in one another. Even as they were being killed, the genuineness in which they were still loving those who were hating them changed the world. This same love is displayed in us. This same love resides and abides in us. And God has blessed us in order to use this blessing as a means to display his love. It's also in how we interact with one another. When we graciously correct one another as to the Lord unto holiness. The end is, is not us championing our way, but rather displaying the Jesus way. In humbling ourselves and placing others above. Encouraging one another to become more and more like Christ as they follow Christ, fervently praying for one another by encouraging each other towards holiness as God's love abounds. You see, there's nothing we need more in our lives than more of the love of Jesus. A love that we will study in the next three weeks that will freely and fully allow us to love those that God places around us. You see, we experience God's love to express God's love. Now I want to challenge you with a handful of things in leaving. You see, recently my family and I, we were able to enjoy 
some parts of God's creation here. We went to Grand Lake, about an hour and a half north of here. Have you ever been there? It's amazing. I mean, th- this is our state. It's incredible. It's beauty. It's grandeur. And I mean, you know, the only thing that even came close to matching the graciousness and hospitality of our hosts was, was just the sheer fact that the awesomeness of this lake is this close. I mean, well, we don't have to fly around the country. Well, we can go right here in our state. And I mean, you can't be at the lake five minutes and you, you realize it's different. There's a different culture. My family, we are lake people. Who knew? All right? And I think one of the reasons why we love the lake so much is that there's certain rules that everyone must adhere to when you go to the lake. You ready for this? Each and every day, abide by these rules. Number one, catch a fish or two each day. Number two, eat way too much. Number three, relax and have fun with friends. Number four, be sure and watch a sunset together. Take naps often. Make lifelong memories. But there's one rule that is imperative. There's one rule that for our family is non-negotiable. That every time you're on a boat in the middle of the lake, you must wear a life jacket. So in closing, how would I tell someone who has never experienced the love of God what the love of God is, I would say it's a lot like jumping into a lake with a life jacket. It is trusting. It is cleansing. It is freeing. It is trusting. You're in the middle of a lake. For us, it was a hot, muggy afternoon. And as we were making our way back to the dock, we stopped at the infamous Dinosaur Point in Grand Lake. It is one of the best swimming coves in this entire part of the country. And as we anchored down into this cove, the guy driving our boat said, all right, life jacket's on, jump off. We kind of looked at each other like, what? Yeah, really? And so I began to take this step off this perfectly floating vessel. I began to look at this water. I didn't know what was underneath this. I knew it was about 26 feet deep where we were going. I don't know what was underneath this, but I had a trust that this life jacket would do what it was made to do, that the intent of this life jacket was to keep me afloat, regardless of how good a swimmer I was, how many times I'd swum in a lake, or even the proximity of where we were in the lake. You see, God's love's like that. It is not based upon your worth, your knowledge, or your understanding. It is based upon God. In his character, his resolve from who he is by his nature to love you, not based upon your performance, but based upon who he is as God. And to receive God's love, you have to trust that his love is available to you, not based upon how good your performance keeps, how bad your performance was, but rather his performance for you through his son, Jesus Christ. It is not something that you and I earn on our own based upon merit, but rather something God has done freely for us. A life jacket does not save if it is not on. God's love can be received by trusting in him. It's a trusting love. 
It's secondly, it's a cleansing love. Man, it was about 104 that day in Oklahoma. And that part of Dinosaur Point is fueled by natural rivers and aquifers and reserves. And the moment I walked into that water, jumped in that water, this cool refreshment flooded my body. I could have hung out there all day. I could have floated there all day. It was cleansing. It was refreshing. That's how God's love is. God does not love the idea of us. God does not love just a part of us. No, God's love cleanses and perfects all of us. That God forgives the totality of all of our sin, past, present, and future, based upon the predisposed love of God seen through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. A love, then, that can never be achieved, but a love that must be received. A love that is not just a one-time act to save, but a love that each and every day continues to transform us and compel us by engaging us to be more and more like Christ, God's supreme love. It is this love that cleanses us as God shapes and reforms us to be everything that he saved us to be. Do you need to be cleansed this morning? Do you need to be reminded of the everlasting love of God? powerful, transforming love of God that cleanses us from all unrighteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Finally, it's a freeing love. Man, we could have hung out there all day. In fact, one of my kids said, can we sleep here? We could, but we're not. In fact, the only thing that could have made this thing better was a nice Dr. Pepper. It's a freeing love. And as we floated in the awesomeness of Grand Lake, I was reminded of the awesomeness of the unmerited love of God this week. A love that is free to rest in all that he is in light of all that he has done. A love that frees us to let go of prejudice, traditions, and our framework of how we want things done. To trust in a completed work of God who oversees us not as a flippant, casual, observing manager, but as a reigning, guiding king who is actively involved in every aspect of our lives. He's alive, and he's alive in us. He reigns, and his love reigns in and through us. A love that is trusting, cleansing, and freeing. A love that must be received. So in closing, God loves us, always has, always will. Is there anyone today that needs to receive this love? That needs to let go of control, let go of being in charge, and trust God is who he says he is, and God has done what he has declared he has done. Is there someone in here that needs to be cleansed, not just from a vertical relationship with the Lord, but horizontally? Is there angst, strife? Is there a refusal to forgive? Are there things among us that we're making major, but in the grand scheme of the kingdom are minor, minor things? Let them go. Take the initiative to forgive, to love one another. Send the text. Set the appointment. Buy the snow cone. Have the discussion. Finally, is there those that need a freeing love? The men, you just need to rest 
in the grandeur and magnitude of all God is and all that God has done for God is love. This place is for you. This series is for you. You are loved. May we never hear that phrase the same again. God loves us, always has, and always will. If you are encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe to hear other messages. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us online at fbcba.org. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and always remember, you are loved.